Hi, welcome to Comeback, the show from Vietnam. I am always your host, Connor, and I delve into a wide variety of topics, including expat life, entrepreneurship abroad, personal well-being, and much, much more. If you enjoy, you can rate on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Apple for written reviews, Spotify for just the stars. That would be enormously appreciated, and I will leave the reviews in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Now, just a quick word from one of the sponsors of this show. As you probably know, I've been living in Saigon, Vietnam since July 2019. And one of the reasons why I've lived here so long is that I found a selection of places that give me a home away from home feeling. One of these places is Paperbacks Saigon, a bookstore with two lovely locations in District 3 and also online. They have genres from fiction to nonfiction, English books, graphic novels and more and they also do custom orders so if there's a book that you can't get your hands on they can help you out with that where you can find out more details are at paperbacks.saigon on instagram and www.paperbacks.vn i will include the links in the show notes and i highly recommend you check them out for all of your reading needs thank you and on with the rest of the show Hey, welcome back to the Comeback Podcast. As usual, I am your host, Connor, and today I am delighted to focus on education with my guest, Lester O. Stevens. We're going to dive into his background in education, education in Vietnam, and more. I'm looking forward to this one. How are you, Lester? I'm great. Thank you, Connor. Yeah, it's great to have you on board. Uh, And as I mentioned to you just off air, I've not actually delved into education specifically on a podcast yet, and this is why I feel like interviewing someone who's at a principal international school in Saigon would be an interesting take. So before we go more into Saigon, can I ask you a bit about your background initially in education? Where did it all begin for you? Sure. Um, I guess it began in in the family generation. My dad was a teacher and um, I was a school child. And when, when I was a young kid, it was either going to be a policeman or a minister in the church. So, yeah. And I found this lovely um, segue into education, um, and I've been in it ever since I left school. Right. So, was, yeah. Twenty-one. I'm fifty-one now. Right. So, okay. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I left school and went straight to university and and did my diploma in in education, diploma in teaching in New Zealand, and then. Uh, taught for a number of years and went back and finished my degree and did some specialist um, papers as well to help me because I'd get moving. Right, I see. And what initially were you drawn on teaching? Was there a specific area or was it the whole industry that appealed you to know, you? That, that's that's a really good question. So when I was at school, I struggled as a learner. And in back in the day, in the 1980s, schools were streamed. So if you, if you imagine third grade, you'd have 3A, 3B, 3C, 3D, etc. So schools were streamed, and I was usually in the mid to low stream, believe it or not. And I, and, but I was, I was an intelligent, I felt intelligent, knowledgeable about things, but it was more around understanding the learning, what was being taught, and then what was actually being learned. So what, motive, what got me into it was, surely uh, there's a better way. Surely there's another way that you can allow young people, children, young people, to acquire the skills, the attributes, the learning um, to, to get them through life. And then um, got into university and I learned about um, the education, the psychology of learning, the educational psychology and learning how to learn. And that was really what sort of springboarded me into a deeper understanding of my craft. Right, I see. Was this understanding more visual, auditory, kinesthetic, that type of thing? Uh, a mixture of all, but it was, it was a little bit of that. Howard Gardner's theory, which has been misinterpreted and used in different ways around multiple intelligences, was part of that back then. Yes, VAC, visual, auditory, kinesthetic. Um, but it was really, it was more around thinking about thinking, metacognition, and the feedback that we give young people, and anyone really, feedback and how the feedback's structured and allowing someone to think about their thinking. So why did they think that way? What was it that framed their thinking? What were the influences of that thinking? So whether it be math, 
uh, something in literacy, a, a novel, books, whatever, research into uh, a unit of inquiry, social sciences. So. Sure. Yeah. And when you were studying, were there any mentors or influences that you had personally to discover your own style of learning that really helped you? Influences as people or influences as uh, authors? I would say influences as people. People. Um, not particularly. Not particularly. I think I, it, was a, it, was a, it was a personal discovery. But I did do certain papers um, at uni, um, educational psychology. Uh, that was, um, and it was called um, Motivation to Learn was part of it. So looking at intrinsic and extrinsic motivators. Uh, the the psychology behind motivation was part of that as well that really piqued my interest as well but in regard to books one of the first books that um, was almost like a come to Jesus moment really it was a book called um, by Dennis Litke called Big Picture and, and it really did look at how children learn and he set up different colleges and schools in the states using a different approach to teaching and learning, which is what we now would see in the IB context or inquiry learning. Um, and that was quite pivotal back then. Right, I see. Mm -hmm. And we are going to dive more into your motivation mm -hmm. and the work that you currently do here in Saigon. Mm -hmm. But before that, it's almost a backtrack. Do you mm -hmm. mind telling me about how you then began in education, sure. but then went from, say, scratch, learning about it, to working your way up to a principal role? I guess this is quite a broad period of time, but how did it develop? Okay, uh, well, started with the study, of course, uh, going to university and, and getting my diploma and then bachelor's in education and, and further studies and then started teaching. And as a, as a young teacher, it was really interesting because it took me four years to fit my skin as a teacher. I always felt like there was more to learn and there is always more to learn but I always felt a little bit behind the eight ball. There's so much to do, and that's one of those misconceptions. It's not an easy job. So much to do, and also the responsibility that you've got of the children in your charge. So the road to teaching was, I wanted to do something in making a difference for other learners, because I, I did not have the most amazing experience as a learner. So to get into the field to make a difference for learners was, was a key catalyst. Um, the pathway from teaching, I taught in small country schools in New Zealand that had three teachers for grades, kindergarten all the way to grade five. So I was teaching cross groupings of three grades in a class, which is unheard of in the international context. So I had lots of experience. I went from high decile socioeconomic schools, worked in low socioeconomic schools, and that gave me a real insight into um, the range of the range of approaches to learning and what kids need, because kids need, kids, it's not too dissimilar, right? What children need in different contexts, but how we build relationships with children and their families makes all the difference. So that was something that also got me through the journey. And then I got recognized um, in New Zealand. I was nominated for Teacher Excellence of the Year uh, Award a couple of times. and and got recognized for innovative teaching practice. So that was a motivator that kept me going. And I then had this incredible opportunity in 2003, when uh, a, a sad situation where my, uh, the most incredible principal I had as, an, as a teacher uh, was unwell and had to take leave. The deputy of the school at the time was on sabbatical and I was, in, I was asked or seconded to step into the principal's role as a, as, as a relatively young teacher, I guess, at the time. I was a young dad and um, it, was, it was a really incredible experience. I failed a lot <laughs> uh, and also learned a lot. And so from there, after that, I was um, applied or invi invited to apply to do a, a, a year-long program called the National Aspiring, Aspiring Principals Program. And that was run through Waikato University in New Zealand in conjunction with the Ministry of Education. And that year-long project was focused on aspiring principals. And that gave me insights into leadership, 
people leadership, curriculum leadership, project management, change management, and we used Michael Fullan. We referenced Michael Fullan, who's a, a writer in um, educational change. And the topic, the name of the book was called Leading in a Culture of Change. And it was very interesting to have such a fundamental text that helped make what was what may have been intuitive decisions or um, naive decisions, giving it some kind of framework and reference to help those things happen. Right, I see. Yeah. Um, I guess after that, I my journey to overseas, I was a deputy head of uh, a relatively large urban school in New Zealand and also had the opportunity to be uh, in the principal role there as an acting principal. When pe people go on sabbaticals, I was sort of springboarded into those roles. And then after that, I thought I'd, I'd want to look for my own principalship um, in New Zealand. But that always that landed me second place at times and other times it was an offer that I'd there wasn't an alignment within the school or the vision or the purpose. So I looked overseas and I was really fortunate to get um, appointed at the Australian International School in Singapore as the um, deputy head of the elementary school, 1,700 students, and it was mind-blowing, uh, overwhelming. I felt like the tidal wave, I couldn't hold back with what had to be done but from a New Zealand context to that. So it took me a little while to just find my feet uh, and it was an, an incredible time, incredible a lot of time for learning, uh, seeing the international context. And then from there, after five years in Singapore, I applied here and, and won the position as head of school at um, ISSP, Excellent. International School Saigon Pearl. And how long have you done this job for? Five years now. Five years, yeah, well. Coming to the end of my fifth year soon. Well, congratulations on the anniversary. Yeah. That's yeah. 12 years in Asia overall, is that? 10. 10, sorry, 10, ten, ten years, years in Asia. 10 years yeah. in Asia. 10 years in Asia and say, quite a long time teaching in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. It brings me to the next question about comparing the models. Right. Obviously the cultures of New Zealand and Asia, whether it be Singapore and Vietnam, are different in many ways. How about the educational models that you found? Yeah, um, it seems so long ago that I was teaching in New Zealand, but I would say that the model, the New Zealand curriculum is actually one of the most beautiful curriculums to work from. It, it's open enough to allow for student agency and framed enough to allow for rigor to occur. There's a lot of supplementary support that goes with it because it's state-based schooling. Uh, when I came overseas to work at the Australian school, we mapped the Australian national curriculum to the IB framework, scope and sequences. So it, there wasn't a huge discrepancy between the approach to learning, so the pedagogy, um, and even the content in, in many ways was, was quite similar. So not huge discrepancies. The difference is the, the, the I guess it's how, um, how quickly the students in an international context, because they were so global-minded, took on board context, contexts and concepts. Uh, and that was quite, quite exciting to see. Student leadership, for example, in a global context, can look so, di so much more different to leadership in a local context. Right, of course, yeah. I'm just trying to get my head around it. As someone who grew up in a purely English environment in England, mm. I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of an international student in an international city such as Saigon or where you were based in Singapore. Yeah. Of course, your whole framework is going to be different in so mm. many ways. Mm. So I'm just trying to get my head around that. And in terms of also comparison or seeing similar types of models. You mentioned in New Zealand, you worked with different, say, socio-economical socio backgrounds, yes. yeah. But you mentioned there were some key similarities, you noticed between the two, that you still had to apply with students. What were they? Children, every child needs a champion, whether they're from a wealthy background or whether they're from a disadvantaged background or a low socioeconomic background, and kids need champions. They also need frameworks, they need firm, fair boundaries and they need love, support and care and, and with those, those, that's the same, that's ubiquitous across, across the world in regard to what children need. And if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we come back to the basics, those don't change. The children need physiological and psychological safety, 
um, and then they need shelter and they need food and all of those things for them to be able to function and, and develop. So those are very, that's all the same across the board. Um, differences that I saw were parenting styles, approaches to parenting, um, and, and quite vast. And that was probably, possibly one of the biggest differences that I noticed. Uh, between socioeconomic groups in New Zealand, it was very different. Um, and they were cultural nuances that were woven through. Uh, and then when I came overseas, I, I noticed a lot of delegation of parenting, or, or um, I wouldn't say abdicating parenting, because I don't think that's fair on our mums and dads globally. Um, but there, we didn't have nannies. Uh, we didn't have helpers in New Zealand. So getting used to the fact that mum and dad were overseas working full time and long hours and weren't home and traveling um, and nannies were looking after the kids and in, in essence raising the children by proxy. And did the nannies and the helpers, whilst they were well intended, did they have the skill sets to, to help, help support children in their educational journey because it takes this you know you know the nigerian proverb it takes a village to raise a child yeah sure you can't just throw it at a teacher and that's your job or the teacher um throws it back it's to the parents so it's your job or the nanny says it's right you've got to come together as a as a triumvirate in some ways you know the family the school the child right and, and that wraparound and the child's so important and so i notice here uh, and I work with families a lot to talk about this. Um, there's a lot of outsourcing, so clubs. Every kid goes to a club every day after school, or Kumon, or whatever parents choose to put their children into. And, and I can understand why, um, but I don't always necessarily think it's great. I think parents need to play with their kids, read with their children, spend time with them, Quality time doesn't mean quantity of time. Quality of time, right? Yeah. But now with the with the the technology that people are on, that we're contactable twenty four seven, and we we often prioritise responding to a text in the middle of maybe reading our child a book. And where's what's the message? What's the message? Right. right so, yeah. So if you think about back in New Zealand, the parenting styles were different because of socioeconomic groups in some ways, and and cultural nuances, as I mentioned before. But then here, it's very, here, when I say here, internationally, it's very different because you've got all the helper influence and the nannies and parents are so busy. And then we learn patterns and habits. And before we know it, the habit is no longer, I'm putting my device away and I'm going to engage with my child for an hour or two and read books and, and play games and sport and rough and tumble climb trees or whatever it is and the habit then becomes hang on a second honey I'm just going to check this message we check the message the child then learns a habit and then that perpetuates yeah absolutely it makes sense it does definitely and I was reading about this recently with um, I think the book Stolen Focus by Johan Hari and it's about being distracted and being perpetually on these devices and taking away from staying present is this the sort of conversation you would have with parents say in your office about how to perhaps be more present with children at home or do you take a different approach? I have had those conversations, yes, I have. Um, I take a slightly different approach where uh, I mentioned before about firm boundaries and with love and support. Yeah. So if I use that model. And what, what I try to support parents in understanding is that who, who are the adults in the home who are the ones responsible for the children's development and well-being? And then what do we have in place within the home system that intersects with the school system? Because right, if they are completely de dissected, the children work in a system at home and they work in a completely diff different system at school. So we try to build an, an intersect around those systems where children are experiencing similar expectations, similar consequences, similar responses to behaviours, uh, habits and actions, etc. So I used Bermaran's model, which is based, it was, it was developed on a, for parenting, and you've got your, you know, the authoritative and permissive and 
authoritarian and neglectful kind of parenting. So I use this framework, but I link it to our welfare approach here, which is based on restorative practices. Uh, have you heard of restorative practices? I haven't, though. Okay. Restorative practices is, is our way of working with children to help support, rather than help support behavior uh, improvement, character development. So if I could, t I might be going off topic, but that's fine. I'm so sure, I'm sure yeah, everyone's going to go, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, forgive me. Um, if we look at the flip side, restorative practice, let's see what it is not. It is not punitive. It is not retributive. So what we've got, in, in and in I'm generalizing in Asia, a very retributive um, parenting approach. And what I've observed, uh, both in Singapore and here, is parents who are absent, or busy, busy, they might not be absent uh, physically, but they may be absent um, emotionally or, or mentally, and the children get to do what they like. Then the child's upset, they get what they want. So you've got neglectful, you've got permissive. And then the child does something wrong, the parent overreacts. And the overreacts in a way that gives the kid a spanking. You know, um, I won't use the word beating because I think that has other connotations. But, right, sure. But a spanking or, 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 a, or a punitive approach, yeah, yeah. right? And that then gives the child, such mi child so many mixed messages. And so if you think about the brain state, that a child is in when they go, well, if I cry, I get what I want. If mum's busy, I get to play and I'm, I'm, on, I'm independent. But then when I do something they don't like, it might not be an expected rule that they're clear about, I get a spank or I get, I get in big trouble when yeah. I'm yelled at or screamed at or whatever it might be. So these children come in at times to an education context quite discombobulated with what is real and what is what is an expectation and what are the outcomes if I behave this way, cause and effect. Right, yeah. We're very discombobulated. So coming back to your question, the conversation I have with parents is about um, aligning, the, getting the intersect between school and home to be bigger and bigger and bigger, like a Venn diagram that's almost overlapping. Right, I see. Right? Yeah, is it about communicating your values as well? Like what the child can expect from the parent, what the parent should expect from the child and making sure that nobody's under any illusions of what should be going on. Mm, right, correct. okay. And, and if you think about values from a psychological point of view, and any psychologist, please forgive me because I am not one, but values determine our motivation. So if I value something, it's going to be more of an intrinsic motivator. If it's something that's forced on me, it's an extrinsic motivator. So I have to do this because otherwise I'll get in trouble or I'm gonna do this because I believe in it. So being kind, yeah. that is an example. Um, so there, that's, there's a lot of conversations that happen in here and around the school and in classrooms with mums and dads uh, about those things. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, I can see. Mm. And when we're, now we're on the concept of values. I guess it ties into the ethos of the school and the mm -hmm. message you'd like to deliver. How would you describe your, I guess, values as a school and values and ethos as an organization? Mm. How would you describe them? Uh, well, our school is, is, is like a family. I won't say a family. I think that gives them a wrong message, but I think we're like a family where, you know, the, the librarian, she's, she knows every child, she knows their reading level, she knows, you know, how, whose siblings are who and who's connected. This is an example. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm at the front door every day with my deputy or other staff and we're greeting the kids and we know the names and as, be, as many as we can and we connect and uh, we look at, and also teacher well-being is really important in that whole process and making sure that our teachers feel connected and valued uh, nothing's perfect, but um, and all of our staff feel like it's a community and a collaborative community, and that then flows over and into the students and also alongside our parents. Absolutely. Mm. And what sort of things do you do to enhance teacher well-being? Cool, great question. Oh my <laughs> gosh, uh, we've got a, we've got a staff wellness committee that has got a budget and a and a charter agreement. 
um, of, of its purpose. And for example, I've been, I have been in schools where the staff committee is really just to organise end-of-year parties. So we've, we've got a number of layers to it. Our staff wellness committee um, also is, is charged with the responsibility of outworking uh, our Be Well Charter, which is cognito-wide, which is you know, group-wide. And that Be Well Charter is things like doing, giving, fitness, nutrition, um, connecting, you know, just to name a few. And so we've got activities constantly going on. We've had yoga. Through lockdown, we had a, a personal trainer um, online with staff who, who wanted to get involved. Yeah, sure. You know, um, we've had farewells and Christmas do's and tet and all the normal things. But we've also got yoga, sound, you know, sound therapy for those who want to do it. One of our staff members is a, is, is a sound, um, sound therapist and lots of different things going on. We've now got m clubs and uh, teachers have signed up for, not just teachers, our, our whole staff can sign up to join a club. We've got book clubs, movie clubs, <laughs> yoga clubs. And I was talking to one of my new, relatively new staff who works in one of my ops teams, and she loves movies, so she's joined the movie club. Now she's connecting with people that she wouldn't have connected, intersected with, or yeah. connected with on a normal daily basis in a school where she'd be in her domain, and yeah, sure. in their domain. But now this has allowed them to connect on another level. So that's well-being in itself, of being able to be connected following up on your interests, trying to create balance, saying go to the movies, you know, enjoy, enjoy what you do, enjoy what you want to do to help your own well-being. One thing that we can't do though, and this is where um, it's interesting when I talk with, if not, I mean, you've seen me socially, so people I connect with, you, you can only manage your own well-being, no one can do it for you. Right. right? So you know all of the all the all of the factors that influence well-being, and so this is you know coming back to staff, sleep, work-life balance, um, nutrition, relationships, friendships, all of those those aspects. I can't do that for them, and no one can except themselves. So we we encourage, we provide models like I've shared with our staff wellness committee. Um, and then we, we, someone is in trouble, or f you can see indicators of well-being not in place. Then we have got alongside them and said, "How you doing?" Uh, we're proactive to check in on on staff and community members. We had a case uh, a while ago where it was a very difficult time through lockdown. Right, people were isolated, they were lonely, and we would just get on a call. And have a happy hour online, or give them give them a call one on one just to check in. Um, WhatsApp groups, all of those kinds of things yeah. that help build connectivity. It sounds like, and I really love this concept of marginal gains. Where, for example, the, the reference of the librarian knowing everyone's name, greeting people at the door, sending a message, ringing, saying what's up, not extravagant gestures but enough to know that the staff are cared and valued for i feel like they're so important for any organization especially a school mm. yeah, those those marginal gains i think small things make a big difference I, i've been i've seen extravagant you know we're all going to be getting you know we'll give you five hundred dollars each whatever yeah, yeah. it doesn't last right? it doesn't last it's a token rather than a lived culture and if you think about any family a functioning family or functioning organization um, it's it's those things that are embedded in the culture that some anyone could walk in this door right now right and a student a parent a teacher unless I'm in a meeting of course right yeah um, and, and be open and honest and for, with no fear of reprisal and I would like to think and I believe that it would be the same for any one of our people to walk into anyone's room to go, I just got to offload. I need to talk to you about something. And you have got a minute, and we would have a culture of care that's quite deeply embedded. Absolutely, and mm. referencing something we mentioned earlier about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation mm. for this, I feel like 
people have to be intrinsically motivated to come back and to share and to trust in the culture, which brings me to you and your motivation. Mm. What is your motivation, if I may ask, for the work you do? I think, um, yeah, let me, I'll go back to when I was a kid, because I think I I touched on it earlier, right? Um, My motivation is children's learning, but not just knowledge. We want our, the kids today are going to graduate into a world in 2030 something, 2040 something, depending on the age, where that we don't even know what it looks like. And we've seen through the pandemic how exponentially the world changes and how quickly, right, vastly changed. Digital space is completely revolutionized. So what kind of education did I have that equipped me for this future? I don't know. I don't think it was as as um, for me as good as it could have been. Partly my fault, p- possibly, is maybe a bit of a lout. Um, but also, I think from a from an educational framework point of view, um, I don't think it set me up for success. Uh, it was a very much an independent, <laughs> self-driven success to um, to achieve something that no one thought I could. Um, does that answer the question? No, I'd say so, yeah. I mean, you're going back to your early days. My motivation, where, yeah, yeah. And you've so, learned from yourself, mm, so. Mm. And I guess the other thing is, you know, we learn, we often think we learn from really good experiences. Uh, I, I've worked in schools where they weren't great experiences with employee employers who I didn't align with. And I could have walked away from that really going, didn't learn anything. But you can learn what not to do and how not to behave. And uh, I've got so many things to learn. And, and uh, from my point of view, I far from, far from got it right. <laughs> but I try every day to make it right. And my motivator is, is children, of course, first and foremost. That's a true north. It's that, that's what um, we often talk about when we're making decisions. What's our true north? Our true north is children and their learning, their well-being. Um, and their development. Then layering on top of that, but we need to factor in staff well-being, well-being wellness, sure. how are we treating our staff. With that comes policy development and all of those kinds of things. So there's so many layers to it, but my motivator is to make a difference for kids and their future, but also at the same time support staff and their growth development and how they feel. Absolutely. How they feel about themselves and their employment and as uh, as an employer, I think it's my responsibility if I'm bringing someone out of their home country and pulling them in here, I have a level of, level of responsibility to ensure that they're okay. Absolutely. And that they're looked after and that they feel cared for. Um, and it's proven, uh, it's proven a good recipe to be kind. For sure. To be kind and, and, and be gracious. So. Yeah. It sounds so simple, be kind, but it's so profound. And I feel like often the words kindness can be perhaps miscon- misconstrued as perhaps um, wishy-washy or flimsy, if you know what I mean. Mm. But really, it's just the fundamental core human value of mm. just appreciation, sure. I think. Yeah. Can, uh, yeah, I think there's another part of kindness that we forget. So if we were, if the word love is often, too, people are too scared to use the word love, uh, and I don't know why. Um, but you know, if you if you love an organisation, you love the people in that organisation, and the kindness is actually about being honest, right? So if if I if I have um, something that's not right, and I ignore it, that's not being kind. So having a courageous or or honest conversation with with a parent about a child, in a way that's framed kindly, but still honest to help that situation, or a teacher who's struggling, or a TA, whatever it might be. I think it's really important that kindness isn't just about giving in and being nice. Right, yeah. Kindness is actually about being strong and being honest. And and that's something that we try to achieve here uh, with our teams and with our people and empower them. Like I said before, kids can come into this office and they may have done something horribly wrong I'm not going to say you're a naughty kid. I'm going to say, what happened? Right, yeah. Right, what happened, buddy? And um, what were you thinking? 
You know, what were you trying to achieve by doing that? Because I need to understand the layers beneath it. And then we'll go, how can we fix this? How can we make it right? What do we need to do? Because let's make it right, because then we're repairing the damage. Absolutely. And we reintegrate back into, back into the society of the classroom or the community of the school and with such a healthy, healthy mental framework. If that kid came in here for whatever, and I said, what did you do? And I raised my voice. Think about the brain stimulation. He's just going to go to red zone, which is fight, flight, and freeze. I'm not going to get any benefit from his frontal cortex. Yeah. Right? So we have to approach those situations in a calm, measured manner. And that is the same with adults. You know, you rush up to an adult, you're just going to get fight, flight, or freeze. So I think it's important um, in, in all aspects of a school culture but more than beyond school of course, of course yeah and it yeah. puts the ball back in their court for an intrinsic motivating factor yeah. for example they can go oh why did I do that right this was going on and actually address the underlying cause mm. rather than just take a bollocking and leave because then Correct. they'll be you know Correct. they'll come back again well yeah that doesn't change that's compliance out of fear yeah rather than changing the character out of an understanding for sure absolutely Absolutely. Absolutely. And usually on the show we talk about the comeback, which is the highlights and the lowlights of somebody's career, I suppose. Mm. I'm going to phrase the question slightly differently, and it's quite broad. What are the most formative experiences of your teaching and education career to date, for good or for bad? Yeah. Do you allow think time on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Take as long as you like. Yeah. Uh, formative experiences. I would say that when I was in an uh, incredible school, and I'll name the school because it's, uh, it's very dear to my heart, called Selwyn Ridge Primary. It was a relatively new school, and I'd come out of a very, in, in my view, I was unhappy in, in the school I was teaching at before it was a middle school. And I went from this school which was very different in its culture to Selwyn Ridge Primary School in New Zealand. And to experience then and now, or from and to, right? It was one of the most poignant times that I learned to fit my skin as a teacher. I mean, and I learned to be innovative and trust myself as a risk taker, as an educator. And it was in that school that I got nominated for these excellence and teaching awards. Yeah, yeah. Because I was pushing boundaries within the scope. Of course, there's rigor and there's lesson plans and units. But I was pushing boundaries to get children to achieve higher than they ever expected they would. And we were doing things. Um, example is you can learn compass reading by doing it in a textbook. Or you could take your children on a, a hike and where they have to navigate and develop their own pathway to a destination, have cooked their own lunch when they get there, which means they've had to get all their ingredients, weigh them out. So math, literacy, they designed their own muesli bars because we were looking at low glycemic index at grade four, by the way. Wow. Right, low, L, low GI. And then they, they made their own muesli bars with their own ingredients. They did the packaging and had to market it. Like, all of those things in a grade four context and the children learned because they were doing it. Yes. And it was a lot of work on my part as the teacher. We didn't have teaching assistants or anything. Right, yeah, yeah. So you're doing it all. And, um, but what an exciting way to see children's eyes light up with learning. And that was the pivotal thing going from then, the from and to, those two contexts. Um, other poignant moments. I think when I was deputy head um, from that school, I moved on to uh, deputy head of a large urban school. And I was dealing with children of, of, with huge trauma, significant trauma from, right. from children, dads being in, in prison because of, um, you know, what do you call it? Level one crime. Right, okay. Yeah, murder, etc. Wow. Um, dads are inside, dads are in the can. Uh, through to parents who were um, addicted to high-level, you know, class A drugs and sure. what have you, and these children had been traumatised. And I was deputy head in charge of pastoral care as well as administration, etc. And bringing in a framework to a school that supported those 
children and then seeing the difference that made embedding it into this not just bringing it in but embedding it training working with staff being the one who's I've had children in my office completely destroy it uh, throwing my lap almost my laptop <laughs> throwing things around because they they are in this fight flight and freeze phase and when you you finally work through a process with these children over a year over two years where they're holding their head up high and they're walking into school and they're, they've managed to repair their own neurological synapses through a whole lot of interventions and it's not me it's the systems that we put around them including the family um, you know functional family therapy bringing those contexts into a school system alongside the families They're, those are poignant moments when you can make a difference in a kid's life absolutely yeah I'm glad you've mentioned that from the innovation concept point of view can I ask you about if we rewind to say 2003 when you've gone into this headmaster role at quite an early age mm. and you've obviously learned a lot but also failed a lot as you mentioned yeah. what are the key I guess lessons or failures from that time sure Go slow to go fast. Okay. Yeah, have you heard that before? I have, yeah. Is it linked yeah. to marginal gains? Can that uh, be intertwined? Go slow, I don't know, I can't recall. Um, but go slow to go fast. I think I've got the tendency to want to get something done straight away. Let's get it sorted. Come on. Same. Chop, chop. <laughs> yeah. Chop, chop. And, and I've made more mistakes by going fast and then having to do it again and repair a lot of damage. And that's not, that's not just... Um, rewriting policies that's that's relational damage and the social capital and the social credit we have with our people is, is so important because it's hard won and easily lost easily lost so listening listening taking my time to listen to people um, to be thoughtful about the decisions we make and be able to justify them to a range of stakeholders not just because I wanted it, to be research informed, to be making decisions based on research, um, because um, it's very easy to go, oh, when I, back in 2000 and such and such, oh, this is what we did, so we're gonna do it here because it worked in that context. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's not the case, <laughs> it's not the case. And so being research informed, I try to keep up with my reading, and so I can be research informed. Collaboration consultation and not confusing the two okay right collaboration and consultation collaboration is when we work together on a, to an outcome as a group collaborate on the outcome consultation as I take people's voices right to then work with a different group or myself to come out with a con outcome I see so, yeah um, measure twice cut once no I'm showing all these sort of uh, anecdotes but they're really important and the other thing I think I learned is to be strategic. And so we, we've worked closely with um, our regional team and our, our internal school team on strategic planning. So we're looking at data, taking the data from a number of metrics, student data, uh, voice of, we do a voice of student survey, we do uh, one on teaching and learning and one on well-being. We do a voice of employee survey and we do a voice of parent survey and we take that data and the verbatim comments and you're always going to have people who are disgruntled or not happy or want to say something that's not nice or that's honest and hard to hear. Right? <laughs> and, and we have to take that and consider that and that helps shape our strategy of if this is what we've got, this is what we're hearing, how does that correlate with what's, what we evidence? And then what does that look like in how we're going to improve our organisation or improve our school? So I think being um, strategic is something I've learned along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. And from this conversation, it's clear that people are at the top or very near to the top of your mission and you, you clearly care about them, their well-being and more. But also as the principal, as the leader, you have to look after yourself. Mm. What sort of things do you do to make sure you're on top of your game? As in, do you say perhaps in your leisure time, quote unquote, how do you keep yourself in your best possible state to keep coming back and mm. doing your best every day? Great question. I mentioned before, no one's responsible for anyone's well-being other than themselves. Exactly, right? yeah. So, so I... 
I don't do it well <laughs> because I give probably more than I have capacity sometimes. But I do, as a musician, I get my well-being out of playing music. And I've got a little band that we practice on Wednesdays and that gives me great joy and well-being. I, I really am careful about what I eat um, and make sure that I keep myself asleep, try to sleep enough. Sleep is really important. Uh, and connect, I've got a great social circle and interact convivially and socially with a wide group of people, not just teachers. I think that's really important. Is, um, because it is quite common in the expatriate education circles, from my observation, that we tend to click with teachers. Uh, we click, we go, right, we're all, we're all in the school and we, we connect with teachers all over the place. But I've been really, really blessed to meet people outside of education. Uh, one of my best buddies is a, was a banker and others are businessmen and um, innovation leaders, etc. So really, really great to be able to meet, with, meet them. But also I've got friends who are, I've got a buddy who's a bee driver on a motorbike. And I met him because he was a security guard at a restaurant next to my building. And we became friends. And we connect when it comes around tech. We have dinner together and we connect and having diversity helps bring well-being to myself. Yeah, so yeah. All, of, all of those things, but mainly the music, I think. Music and, and having good friendships and good relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. And we actually did meet through music when I saw you play yes. at Union Jacks, which I know you do regularly, mm -hmm. every, almost every Sunday. Every Sunday I'm available. Every Sunday you're available, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk to me a bit more about Union Jacks, how it started and your time playing there? Yeah, sure. So I've got a buddy, Nick, and um, he's, he, he's, he's a photographer, and, but it's not his, it's not his job. He, he's setting up a, a, a global F&B platform and what have you, innovative, an innovator. And he introduced me to Ryan, uh, Matt, sorry, Matt. Uh, at Union Jacks one day, and we started chatting. You know, would you be interested or something along those lines? I think that's how it started. And um, then it's just a great vibe there on a on a Sunday. It's really chilled out. Great. It's it's a nice it's a nice environment uh, on a Sunday lunchtime because I don't play late. Just do a lunchtime, and yeah, I just enjoy it. Yeah, it's great. you get a lot of freedom with the songs you pick as well. You get to choose your playlist. Oh yeah, I don't charge to play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I charged to play, then I'd be a monkey boy. <laughs> it's like play monkey boy. <laughs> no, and and that's part of it. I think I think that um, because I don't go right, I'm charging so much for an hour. There is an exchange. There's an exchange of of maybe a maybe a lunch or. Um, conversation and friendship yeah, like yeah. there's an exchange that's not always tangible in, in a financial game yeah but as soon as I go right I'm such I play for whatever an hour it changes the whole framework of why I do it yep I, I do that because it I when I'm playing music and singing or whatever I do not think about work I just don't I can't like, I'm completely in a different zone it's almost like an alter ego but without being silly about it sure it's a different kind of vibe that I get into and that's great it's very healthy for me yeah I read somewhere and I should really be able to quote my sources that if you start getting paid for something that was previously a labor of love suddenly you lose your motivation to do so correct because it's driven by that mm -hmm. extrinsic value of oh well I should charge 600k or more or you're suddenly thinking in that sense from a business financial point of view rather than the passion yes yeah. yeah so I feel like I love the fact you've mentioned that just to kind of give it some clarification mm. yeah mm. that is key and I suppose the final question before we wrap up Lester is always quite broad but I always pose it and it's always to do with the future we've discussed your past what you're up to currently but what would you like to achieve going forward perhaps in the next couple of years at quote-unquote let's hope post-pandemic what would you like to achieve well, I've got a lot to do here still. Sure. I, I, I'm committed to this community right? I, and, uh, as best I can, depending on what life throws at us. But my commitment to the community of five years is a relatively long time for a head of school to stay in one place. 
but we've come on an amazing journey as a school. We're now an IB candidate school, uh, going for authorization with the International Baccalaureate, and to leave without seeing that come to fruition uh, would, I think, would break my heart because I think we're on such a great journey here. Um, I'm part of this community. Uh, so beyond that, I, I don't know. I don't really know. I, I, it would be a head of school in, a, in maybe a bigger school, through school, a different community that I can make a difference in, um, or consultancy. Uh, I've met a number of consultants who um, have really interested me in what they do and made me think of maybe think differently um, but not sure not sure, not sure. Yeah. for now you're tied to say for now i am committed to this amazing little community excellent yeah i've really enjoyed this lester i think there's been so many great insights and such a wide variety of topics uncovered not just in education we've also touched upon leadership and people management and more do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up or yeah yes. i do I do. Um, when when we were chatting online before, you I gave me some ideas for questions. You were you asked about misconceptions. I did, yes. Mm. Yeah. And and I thought about that, and I think there's a misconception um, generally. Uh, education is often a football for social engineering, and if you think about. Um, England, for example, when you've got a Tory government or you've, what's the other one? The Labour. Labour government. No, the education policies change quite dramatically between the two, um, whoever's in, in office. And I see it in New Zealand, I've seen it uh, in different countries, where it's, it's a social engineering tool in which to um, drive a labour force. And so I want to, and then when I've got into international education, uh, the International Baccalaureate, for example, has become a lot more, it's a lot less that, and it's looking at global citizens as its kind of agenda. So I do have a cornerstone quote I'd like to finish with. Excellent. All right, I'm going to turn my, because it sits here, because it's that much of a cornerstone. It's by a guy called Stephen Sterling, and um, it's from his book, Sustainable Education. And it, it's not a new book, but it's still my cornerstone quote. So please bear with me. No worries. We're used to hearing our schools being assailed by critics who want to know why Johnny can't read, Johnny can't write, and who call for a return to the basics. But why stop worrying there? Why not worry that Johnny can't dance, can't paint, can't breathe, can't meditate, can't relax, can't cope with anxiety, aggression, envy, can't express trust and tenderness? that Johnny does not know who he is. Let us admit that the basics have nothing to do with Johnny's health, happiness, sanity or survival, but with his employability. Whose interest then is Johnny's education serving? Wow. And that's the perfect way to end. Lester, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks everyone for listening.